This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and this week we have a special edition. Have you ever stopped to think about the role the media plays in the game of tennis and the media in all of its many forms? From the world's finest commentators... Calling the score, framing the storylines, being a good asker of questions... To the players themselves. We're learning more about the game, what happens behind the scenes, if you think about the, the media involved with that. We get the agent's view. You know, partnering with the right partners, but also giving them good advice. So it, it varies, uh, you know, depending on the, on the level, the, the status, uh, the age of the player. There's the written press. Not a lot of people specialise in it, so, you know, when you have someone who does you know, kind of know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's Sometimes it can stand out. We head behind the cameras. I feel like a bit of a spy sometimes. The players say, what the hell is he doing on all fours looking through that? It's weird, you know. And we talk social media. It's certainly not, a, oh, I want to ask them, are they clean or messy or, you know, how they get stains out of their clothes? I mean, you, you really, I really do craft those questions, or I, or I try to, in order to have the best chance of getting a good answer out of the player. You're listening to an ATP Tennis Radio Podcast Special. There have never been more ways to follow tennis. Whether it's on TV, radio, digital, social, or a combination of all of the above, the action comes thick and fast, brilliantly described by a select group of men and women, the match commentators. Some are former players, some aren't. Chris Fowler is one of the best in the business for ESPN in the States, despite never having played professional tennis. And that is where the conversation started when he spoke with our reporter, Mike Cation. I try not to overstep. I I will try not to say things that should come from someone who played the game at a high level. I just played as a kid. My skills were very limited. I knew I wasn't going to be good enough to play college tennis. I've known I want to do this since I was 10 years old. So I was really preparing for this career and... You know, having hit a few tennis balls and, and loving to play, um, my game was depleted. I think you need to have played the game on some level and enjoy it to help your broadcasting. But I defer to the people that have played and coached at a high level and try not to overstep. Uh, I think we can offer a lot. Not having played doesn't necessarily mean you can't sense the moment, be a storyteller, uh, frame what you're seeing on the court. But obviously there's things that only John McEnroe is qualified to say or Darren Kale or Brad Gilbert and those guys – obviously have to take precedence when it's an issue of um, playing the game. I've always thought of you as, as the, the bus driver. You have these unique... <laughs> An unruly uh, school bus in back <laughs> where you can't, keep, you can't keep the kids quiet. That's pretty much a good analogy. Uh, but you have some very unique personalities, um, the, the men you just mentioned, uh, the women you've worked with as well mm-hmm. here. How do you try to drive? How do you try to lead while allowing those personalities to show through? Yeah, I don't think that leading is how I view my role. I think calling the score, framing the storylines, being a good asker of questions, being the viewer's surrogate in the booth where if Brad says something, I know it's hard to imagine, that maybe isn't clear <laughs> right away. I go, Mr. Gilbert, 
I'm in, I'm in the role of the viewer. What do you mean by that? Or I can go a step deeper with Patrick McEnroe or Darren Cale or Chrissy Everett or Mary Jo because I think that maybe the viewer needs a further explanation. So that's one of the most enjoyable parts of the job for me, Mike, is working with analysts in all different sports, learning from them, because I have absorbed a lot of tennis knowledge from just being around these people for years, and they all kind of see it differently. That's what's interesting about this. You know, you do football with one guy for the entire season, and Kirk Herbstreit and I worked together for 23 seasons. In tennis, two, three times a day you're doing a match with very different personalities, and you're trying to adjust your game to get the best out of them, but the challenge is where the enjoyment comes from. You work a match with John McEnroe, it's not the same as working with his brother or yeah. working with Darren and Mary Jo. And so you, you make the adjustments, you try to help them illuminate the viewer. So. John is such a polarizing figure. Um, really? Uh, a little <laughs> bit. Um, what's it been like? I think there's got him? more people in one poll than the other. I think that, think listen, so? I mean, when I, I was a kid, I was coming up, I loved the fiery, brash American players who came on the scene. Before John, of course, it was Jimmy Connors. I'm about 12 years old when he storms through Wimbledon. Ken Rosewall was a legend worthy of respect. But I'm a kid. I don't care about a legend (laughs) who's approaching 40. I like the young, fiery guy. And then John comes along. And John was – I was just a huge John McEnroe fan. And I think that it's still kind of cool for me all these years later to work with John – to have won his respect, which isn't easy and isn't instant. You've got to show that your life hasn't been in tennis. I didn't play, as you mentioned. So it takes some time to sort of earn his respect that, hey, this guy, number one, is enthused. Number two, wouldn't want to be anywhere else on the day of a big tennis match. And, and I think, you know, does hang around the coaches, the players, reads the notes, watches the tape, prepares – and that's how you earn the respect of these ex-players and these greats that you work with by showing that you care and that you take the job seriously. That idea of what's on the record and what's off the record, yeah. especially where you are eating, as am I, in the same area where the, the players are eating, the same lounge. Uh, how, how do you keep that true in an era in media where so much that, that line is being blurred more and more? Yeah, it sure is. I think you have to be careful. I think when you are told things that, clearly are meant to be off the record, you got to keep them that way. You can use it in background. You can use it to avoid saying something that would be incorrect, but you can't go blurt out something that some player told you in confidence. You, you, you've been there a, a hundred times. And, and what they think of their peers, it's juicy stuff. Yeah. You'd love to say on the air, hey, you can't, I can't believe what this guy said about that guy. But you know you shouldn't do it because those conversations are had in confidence. Now, now it's, it's kind of a privileged position to be in because you do have some access to the coaches and the – and the teams, and the players themselves. And um, it's not that easy in this sport. They don't make themselves available as much as I think they should. Um, the media requirements, I don't think, are, are that heavy for in this sport. So the opportunities that you get to, to interact with people, and that's been one of the biggest joys because you know, these living legends that we've been privileged to watch on the court are guys I've gotten to know off the court, as you, as you have, you know, Nadal and Federer and Djokovic. I mean, these guys are all very different, but all very compelling and very interesting, and they have surprising personality facets that people might not realize, and Roger's sense of humor would probably shock some people. <laughs> Novak is so thoughtful. Rafa is just so grounded and so normal, and being able to spend time and have conversations with these guys about things other than tennis is just something I'll always treasure. I think the personalities make it uh, intriguing. 
in terms of being able to mm-hmm. tell those storylines. Um, it, it's just a matter of finding that success, as you know all too well, wins really drive things here in the media landscape. What, which, Roger made a great point, and you, you live these guys who are grinding around and trying to battle and make a living. I think there's so many compelling stories in tennis. There's so many wonderful individual stories that haven't really been told because the guys haven't lifted the big trophies, but it doesn't mean they're not worth getting to know. And we, we have to do a better job of that, of, of making sure that, you know, we sell, you know, what's interesting about Daniil Medvedev, a guy who, you know, we're going to be talking about, you know, more and more. I think he, you know, here's a guy who, um, you know, in, in 15 seconds, you know, Russian parents, 17 years old, decides, you know, I'm going to go to France. Parents said, you better learn French. He goes there. His coach communicates with him only in French. The kids speak to him only in French. And he's a Russian kid, and he's thrived and flourished and stepped away from his parents and had great success. You know, lacks a flashy, modern, conventional game, but is having some great results. There's, that's, just, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think there's so many great stories. We've got to do a better job of telling them. Chris Fowler of ESPN, and it's not only the commentators whose job it is to talk up the game. That role also falls to the players themselves. Here's South African world number 99 Lloyd Harris at the recent ATP University in London. It's an interesting uh, situation. I mean, all year round we're playing tennis and then to kind of come off and do a three-day course on uh, we're learning more about the game, um, what happens behind the scenes, if you think about the the media involved with that they're teaching us about like the anti-doping anti-corruption program they're also just teaching us you know what what to expect as life on tour uh, how to manage life off the tour in general it's just about improving your knowledge as a whole about what can make you a better tennis professional and things you can maybe add or things you need to add into your lifestyle or some things to think about doing after your life as a tennis player. So it's, it's small things from different categories that you just pick up and that we can use. What's sort of the age range? Are you mid-age or are they older than you, younger than you? Some of the guys are my age and I think we kind of almost the youngest. I think there's one guy maybe two younger than me and then there's a couple of the older guys that's been around for a little longer. Um, but so we're talking about what, 18 to 23, that kind of age? I'm 22. Um, so I would say there's two or three guys that's my age and then there's a couple of guys that's 26, 27, a couple of older players but I guess um, it all, I mean you get into the ATP University once you reach a certain ranking barrier so it's not necessarily a- anything with age related uh, at the end of it. Lloyd Harris with Chris Bowers. Players are increasingly aware of what's going on around them and one reason for that is the role of the sports agent often perceived simply as the brains behind the money, they can also be essential in guiding a young player's development. Enrique Molina started out as an umpire, but is now a player manager. What gives me a lot of pleasure, and this is what I can take you know, from my umpiring days, is, uh, is that you help you know, athletes to, uh, to perform better uh, and to give them you know, good advice uh, for their you know, careers. Now, I'm sure every player is different, but what's your main job? What's the main job of the, the agent, the, the, the player manager? Yeah, there's, uh, it's a good question, because, uh, but I have not one specific answer. I think there's a lot of uh, different aspects that go into you know, good, providing good uh, management to our athletes. Uh, the number one is, uh, I think, you know, building trust and uh, that they can rely on someone to take care of their careers, um, from, both from a commercial you know, uh, 
point of view. Um, so, you know, searching, looking for the best contracts and not just money driven, but, uh, you know, partnering with the right, uh, with the right partners, right? Um, but also, you know, it's, uh, yeah, giving, giving them good advice. So it, it varies, uh, you know, depending on the, on the level, the, the status, uh, the age of the player, like in my case, I'm really grateful to manage a player like Feliciano Lopez, who's been around for so long, right? So the advice or the, the things that I, that I do for him are different to what I do, you know, for a 14-year-old uh, girl, you know, that is starting her career. So it, it, you need to give him, you know, uh, advice in many different ways and, and aspects of their career. And I suppose it makes a massive difference how mature they are as people because a, a mature 20-something player who's seen a little bit of the world will need fewer decisions made for him or for her than somebody who has known nothing other than practice courts, tournament courts and the inside of tournament transport. Yes, correct. So it, it really, that's, that's one of the, uh, I think that's one of the key, you know, uh, aspects of our job, you know, to to read and understand what a player needs so and then that will depend on their this, the moment of their careers uh, you know it involves a lot of factors like financially again having a good structure around them and of course age maturity personality it's, it's different to let's say you know to uh, to work with uh, someone like Nekirios than you know uh, Roger Federer or Feliciano Lopez. So it's different personalities. It's not better, not worse, but different, right? We saw at the start of this year a slump in form for Sasha Zverev, mm -hmm. and he then revealed that he had split from his management company. And okay, it would be wrong to blame everything on the fact that he split from his management company, but it obviously really unsettled him. I mean, it's obviously a, a major part of a top player's um, environment. Yes, definitely, and 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 you know, uh, without going into details, which I not necessarily know all of all of them, but it's a it's a good example of a, you know of a, exactly what I was saying earlier that you build trust with the with the player and the player with the agent. So when something something happens, it's it affects the the athlete, of course, uh, because this is a this is a relationship that is ending perhaps in not the best way, uh, um, after so many years of trust and uh, common goals and working together. So naturally, yeah, it affected him, uh, but uh, thankfully he's, uh, he's back on the, on, uh, on the right track, I believe. If we go back 15, 20 years, you'd have found that almost any, every player was with one of the three big agencies. Then it all fragmented into lots of smaller agencies. And mm -hmm. the agency you're with, Tenium, is one of the smaller ones, and Roger Federer set up a small agency called Teammate. Why do you think the you know, the general move in the economy is towards bigger companies, yeah. and here's the management of tennis players getting down into smaller companies? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I think I think there is. Um, you know, the the change in the model uh, it's it's basically you know in driven because of the players' uh, will, right? And and I think the players got to. To realize or to feel that they they much better off being with a with a smaller agency uh, that can really provide a, an exclusive, a much more exclusive service, a much more personal. So, like in our case, uh, we're not the, by no means we are the largest. I mean, as you said, the IMGs, the octagons are much much bigger, but we we feel and and most you know most importantly the the players uh, feel that 
they can get a you know a more dedicated uh, boutique service uh, so we and that's because we we look after them we focus in quality not in quantity so we could do with a lot more players for sure uh, we reject you know some some players that could could bring business to us but but we really believe that in this in this philosophy we will provide a better service to, to the players and ultimately the, the, the business goes in the direction of their will, really. Agents and managers often take the lead, but the bigger the player, the more likely they are to be directly involved with setting their own media agenda. Andy Murray is one such example, according to two of the UK's leading writers, Simon Briggs from The Telegraph and, first of all, Stuart Fraser of The Times. Good at speaking about other topics as well. Uh, such a sort of thoughtful individual, uh, very articulate. And, um, yeah, I think uh, the, the great thing for the sport at the moment is that, you know, players like Nadal, Djokovic and Federer are still around. I mean, I, I sort of had a look back in the rankings uh, yesterday to see, like, what was the first year in which Federer, Nadal and Djokovic were in the top ten uh, at the same time. And it was 2007, 12 years later, they're still there, you know, up towards the top, all in the top four. It's amazing, really. And uh, as long as they're still around, we've got plenty to write that way. But the younger generation coming through does make it a lot more exciting, too. And um, this is the strongest generation coming through in a while. How exciting, you know, in writing terms, is this new generation, the Ogi Aliassimes and the Shapovalovs and the Sitsipasses? Well, certainly the last uh, two you mentioned, Tsitsipas and Shapovalov, it's not just that they win a lot, it's that they look pretty exciting while they're doing it. Uh, I mean, Tsitsipas also quite, a, in particular, is quite a sort of handsome fellow. You put him in a Burberry coat and he looks good on the front of a magazine. So um, those guys have got sex appeal. Um, they're really going to be... Uh, assets and, and hopefully they're going to have 10 years at the top. And growing the profile of players and not just the top players but all of them is also key for Guardian journalist Tumaini Cariol. It's a role he's nurtured over time. I'd say I just read a lot, read different <laughs> people, I try to take for, you know, inspiration from different places and just build my own style and I, I guess I, everyone has their own voice in their <laughs> head so I don't know, I've been also doing it for a while because when I started, this was like 2011, I think, mm. and I went to uni, and during uni, I was travelling as well, probably seeing you around <laughs> at some point, and, <laughs> and doing both, and just during that time, I was able to kind of be in education, but also do this without needing to make a full-time living, you know? Yeah. So during that time, that's when I was, you know, just wrote a lot. I'm sure I wrote some terrible pieces when I, <laughs> when I read back some of the stuff I wrote. It's not always great, <laughs> but, you know, that's how you learn and improve and just build your own voice and see what people like, see what people don't like and that kind of thing. So what do you think that people like nowadays about your writing now versus maybe what it was f even five years ago? I don't know. I think I just try to, when I interview players, I just try to speak to them as people and hope that that conveys in their in when I in my features and stuff and I play tennis and mm -hmm. I, I know the sport so I try to you know just get put my knowledge when I write and hope that comes across well and yeah I just think it's quite a niche sport and not a lot of people specialize in it so you know when you have someone who does you know kind of know what they're talking about mm -hmm. it's sometimes it can stand out 
I know print journalism, it's been a very difficult 10, 15 years. So what, uh, how many opportunities have there been for, for print journalists in the sport? Um, and, and obviously you're coming from a, a different perspective as well yeah. on that. I was talking about this recently with, with a friend and the slams are obviously still very popular and but you know it's this tennis is just a tough sport to follow you know it's 24 hours as 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 you you can you know it's from from the big events to challenges and to to follow everything it's kind of hard and it's there isn't a lot of interest in general tennis it tends to be the bigger stories the bigger tournaments so you know sometimes when i'm at tournaments i'm kind of loading up as much as possible for the slams you know yeah. getting as to maybe writing them here but they're going to be published in a week when the US Open starts so uh, that that's the I guess the frustrating part that there's so many great stories in tennis so many you know lower ranked players who are doing just have really interesting stories but those aren't always the ones that you know you're able to publish just because there's not that much there's not the audience there's not that much interest Shimana Cariel joining us here on ATP Tennis Radio. And, and how do you cultivate those relationships with players when your availability with them is somewhat limited? For me, at least, the goal is just to be nice. <laughs> um, I think that's the basic thing. But, I mean, it's not always the case. And I think you just have to understand that they're human beings, that, you know, we're speaking now. And, yeah. you know, they're not just, like, quote machines. They're not people just to you know you know sometimes I, I mean it can be easy to just like ask them controversial questions just to get a reaction but yeah. you have to understand how you're ask, ask, speaking to them or what you're saying and you know hopefully then they'll eventually the more they see you the more they'll trust you to be honest and open and to just to not kind of shut down you know if you were talking to somebody who is maybe 17 18 19 thinking about university uh, versus and wants to be a tennis writer, wants yep. to be involved in this sport. What type of a, a route would you advise them to go in terms of becoming a, a journalist within this sport? <laughs> it's, it's funny because of you know I've, I've started for a long time. I've been kind of one of the youngest people here, but yes. now there's some younger people, <laughs> and it's very strange <laughs> for me. Yes. But it, um, I don't know. I'd say it's helpful to study journalism and all of that stuff. And I do think that there's some things that I've had to kind of catch up on. Mm. But I guess the main thing is just writing, reading, writing, you know, being a putting yourself out there. I think that's a big thing, you know, understanding that people are going to say no. For me, to be honest, you know, at times that's not as a freelancer, you know, that it's kind of scary to just send, you know, blind emails to editors and know that, you know, if maybe they'll just reject you and then not ever respond or something. <laughs> so there's a lot of getting over that. And I don't know, I think you just kind of have to put yourself out there as in a good way as much as possible and eventually you know the more you're knocked down as, as as long as you keep on knocking on doors eventually you know someone will answer and you'll get kind of the opportunity the saying goes that a picture is worth a thousand words so it's only fitting we should hear from two men who spend most of their life watching tennis through a camera lens mike cation spoke with leading tour photographer peter staples but first let's hear from one of the leading television cameramen and characters on tour Brucey Smith on how innovation is changing what we see. Spider Cam has revolutionised the coverage of tennis. So that's the one that looks like it swoops right it's, it's down on, in front it's of on, the It's players. on four wires and controlled by two guys. One controls the actual movement of it, 
which is called the pilot, and the other guy actually controls the zoom and the actual camera head. And the footage is wonderful. I think it's wonderful. It's fantastic. And now it's on cricket. Um, I started off doing one of the OB cameras, the OB, which means the live cameras, in 2000. And it was Monte Carlo, and I thought, God, tennis is brilliant. First tennis match, I always remember it. I'll never forget it. Gustavo Quirt and Magnus Norman. It was 26 degrees, start 11 o'clock. By 11.23, Magnus Norman was like six love down, five love down. And I thought, this is fantastic. I love tennis. Three hours later, <laughs> he loses seven, seven, six in the third. I'm going, what? Magnus. I'm going, what the hell is all this about? Not realizing, you know, how long a tennis match should go for. But now it's in my blood. I, I can recall scores, games. You do find yourself watching it and following it. It's part of your life, you know. I don't do tennis all year. I do other stuff, other work, obviously, like everyone else. But, yeah, it's in my blood now. You know, I followed the first first match ever. I was there with Roger's first ever 1,000 win in Hamburg. I was the handheld cameraman. I was there for Rafa's first match. And now they come to the twilight of their careers. And I look back thinking, geez, they've made a lot of money. I'm back to square one. <laughs> They've done well, those boys. They have done pretty well, you've got to say. Yeah, those boys have done well. Good luck to them. Tennis is innovating all the time. And you were telling me before, I, I hadn't even clocked this, that the, the signing of the camera lens is your idea. Well, I wouldn't say I couldn't give all the credit. Uh, yeah, I was the first guy to put that glass on and then carried it on from there with different ideas. We actually had glass etched with ATP on, ATP on which, which didn't quite work. But yeah... I was the first guy to um, to basically use that idea. Um, yeah, it was incredible. And now I should have marketed it, or not marketed it, I should have uh, patented that, I would have been quite rich. What next for you? What am I keeping you from doing? What, you know, give us an idea of, just quickly, what you've been doing a, today and, and what, you've, what you're going off to do. So a day in the life of an ENG cameraman on the ATP tour. We have a lot to do. You know, there's numerous matches throughout the day, quite a lot. So we're producing a world feed, that's our our job we do here so I facilitate the world feed as in scenic shots which are long shots that you play in between matches to get out of one match to another you put graphics on that type of thing scores also we go to practices match court and get all the ISO which is like the just as close-up shots for all the players different angles slow-mo you know that type of arty behind the scene look the walk-ons the shots that you can never get from a live camera and you're looking, how do the guys that get that shot looking through someone's kind of arm or through their sunglasses and up high? Or I feel like a bit of a spy sometimes. The players say, what the hell is he doing on all fours looking through that? It's weird, you know. I always find myself in these weird positions. Shooting through the net. Yeah, all that type of stuff, you know. And I think, yeah, you've got to try something different. So, yeah, the practices and then all the night shots. So you do everything in the day when it's sunny and then do it all at night and the next day it's all cloudy and they have to go back out and do it all cloudy and then we're always thinking about new kind of openers then we do the story of which is a review of the tournament so you always try and put a nice theme through it you know as much as we are a live wealthy broadcaster we still want to be creative as much as we can and I think that's very important I think the levels we produce here are so high it's fantastic and credit to everyone you know the passion they put into this job that's everyone from directors, VT, the audio guys, the editors. It's huge. The days are 12 hours minimum. You know, it's, 
it's incredible the hours we put in and I think it's incredible what we put out. I think everyone should be hugely proud of the product. A lot of the work I do when I work for tournaments like the City Open or the Miami Open or the US Open or work for the ATP for the finals, I get, I can access anywhere and I get to go and photograph with the players where there's no press. When they go off sites, if they go to a, like a Miami Heat game, I'll go with, I've done with Roger Federer and, and Novak. So to go with them with no other press and follow them around and just be a fly on the wall, it's amazing. So it sounds like that is would be your favorite part of the job? Or? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, to, just to have that access and to just uh, be there when they're being themselves. Yeah. And they're not threatened by you because they know you work for the tournament. It's, um, I guess if you get to know them a little bit, when you look, especially off, off court when you're doing things with them and you see the emotion in their eyes when they're talking to kids or, you know, who they really are, it's, I'm so focused on their eyes, you can see their emotion, it's actually, it's amazing to be there and have that access to see that. And when you're actually courtside, if we take it back to your quote-unquote day job, uh, what's the challenge of photographing tennis, just in general, for the photo geeks who are listening in right now? It's, it's not an easy ask to photograph a world-class tennis match. The hardest part is where the photo positions are and trying to get good photographs, with, um, especially having lousy backgrounds. We're trying to get a clean background so the actual player pops out of it, so rather than having you know, lots of umpires and chairs and whatever in the background so trying to find a, a, a good position when they're very limited some tournaments just limit you to one spot and when the light's bad it's bad you just have to deal with it so that's the biggest challenge a clean shot what makes up a, a very clean shot you've got no one in the background you've got limited yeah there's lines the, people or le less branding a position where there's just blank um, uh, back wall where there's no branding and often you'll see photographs where we get up really high and we shoot down the court so they're just the court surface and that's a really clean background but you have to get very high to do that and there'll be times say when you're working at certain tournaments where they would want certain branding in shots is that right yeah so when i'm working for tournaments like img for the miami open well, City Open, we're trying to get branding, so often my job is not shooting action, I'm just trying to shoot branding with players in it, so we actually can get images from Getty, so my job is not actually shooting a lot of action, I'm shooting branding, crowd scenes, I'm documenting the tournament, so we're shooting where all the signage is, so the sponsors know, they can prove to the sponsors that was signage was there, that there was crowds in front of the, uh, the signs, all the, the booths, so we're really documenting and it's a marketing exercise in a way. Talking of marketing, finally, what has social media done for the game of tennis? With followers, likes, views and retweets in the thousands and even millions, there's no doubt it's become a key way for fans of all ages to follow the game and a direct route to them for the players and also the likes of the ATP. Making sense of what works best can be tricky at the best of times, but fortunately we have American journalist and presenter Blair Henley to explain. I really look at my job as, as kind of a a way to help the fans get a little peek into player personality because I think that's what really builds 
fan support. If you, you, fans could come and see a player they've never seen before in their lives and potentially in their post-match interview, they say something funny or you, you open the door for them to say something interesting or offbeat. And that fan could be a fan for life because they saw that happen live. And so that's really how I look at my job. I definitely think hard about how to phrase those kind of offbeat questions because yes. I think they can be done poorly and I think they can be done well. Uh, so I definitely think hard about them. It's certainly not, a, oh, I want to ask them, you know, are they clean or messy or, you know, how they get stains out of their clothes. I mean, you, you really, I really do craft those questions or I, or I try to in order to have the best chance of getting a good answer out of the player. But yeah, I think it's an important part of building a fan base is having them become attached to players, not just because they like their tennis, but because they like their personalities. The social media clip that obviously took off this week was the one about why you got in trouble as a child. Yes. Uh, Pass was the one that got me. If anybody, if you haven't seen it, you must check it out on the Western and Southern Open. You can find it on their Twitter page. Yes. Um, about how he said he told his parents that his brother got lost and yes. they thought he was kidnapped. And it, it was the one serious one out of all of them. It was. I, I, it's probably not surprising to anyone that <laughs> Steph had the, the very the serious, unusual answer of the bunch. Yeah, his mom told him to keep an eye on his little brother. And uh, two hours of searching later, they finally <laughs> found him. So we got some great answers to that. Andy Murray, we actually put out a, a clip on its own of Andy's answer to that question, what got him in trouble as a kid and of course he said it was behaving badly on a tennis court <laughs> he went on to explain that when he was 14 at a tournament in the Czech Republic he was with his grandmother and his mom he cursed on the court his grandmother heard it or his gran as he says <laughs> and then didn't speak to him for three months uh, so it that question was actually really fun and kind of getting to know another side of players do you ever have some players though that don't respond to it yes that does happen occasionally, and sometimes it's a player who you may be used to getting great responses out of, and they're just having an off day. That happens too. And I think my job is, again, to make them feel as comfortable as possible and to try, if I can, to just creak open that door just a little bit to make them, to get them rolling enough so yeah. that they're thinking, okay. I can give you a few good sentences on this, and then I'm going to move on to my nap or my massage or whatever <laughs> comes next. But yes, absolutely not every interview is uh, super easy. And some players, let's be honest, some are better on a mic or in front of a camera than others. Some are just not as comfortable with that. But I do think it's, it's also nice for me to kind of see the growth. Uh, Francis Tiafo is one at the beginning. He didn't love that kind of stuff. Um, in, in terms of giving a soundbite, it may not have been his strongest suit. I've really seen exceptional growth from somebody like Francis. The more interview he, interviews he's done, he has a great attitude about it. Um, and I think it's really shown in the answers that he's capable of giving now. You had a segment this week taking players for a ride on a, on a golf cart. I did. Um, that seems terrifying. <laughs> you have a player in your hands almost literally what was it like to have that that worry over your head as you're trying to also conduct an interview at the same time well I will tell you before we got the green light to do those interviews because we we thought golf cart interviews have been done before but in terms of we wanted it to have kind of a carpool karaoke feel yeah. and again a player when there's no ATP rep in the cart with you when you're just in the cart by yourself there's really no one even within earshot right you get a bit of a different feel uh, in terms of the interview. But 
The first time I asked this question, I got a hard no from security. <laughs> they said, absolutely not. You're not driving a cart. Uh, and I kind of heard that secondhand. And I said, you know, totally understand if the answer is no. But I'd love to talk to them in person. Yeah. So imagine me sitting at a table with six or seven <laughs> security members here. And I explained the concept to them. I think it probably helped to meet me in person. Yeah. I like to think I don't look like a crazy person who would do something yeah, irresponsible. Hopefully not. Uh, and they said, okay, we understand the concept. Let's give it a go if it works out green light to do it again. Uh, and so Francis, speaking of Francis, was the first victim. <laughs> we, we made it through. No hitches. Uh, Ash Barty did have to help me release the security brake uh, yesterday. She, I'm sure, was super nervous about the ride after that. But again, Francis, <laughs> Francis was the perfect person to start yes. with because he's about as relaxed as they come. We had a great ride, talked about some fun stuff. Blair Henley, thank you so much. It's been delightful. Mike, thank you so much. So that is it for this week. I'm Seb Lozier. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Thanks once again to all of our guests for their fascinating insight. Next week, we celebrate the festive season with one of our highlights from the Nito ATP finals at the O2. It's now an annual fixture, the ATP Tennis Radio Quiz, hosted by commentator Chris Bowers. It's a lot of fun. Join us then. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review.